Hello, welcome to the Entrepreneur's Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climate Hambrose. I'm James Hurley, Enterprise Editor at The Times, and I'm your host for this series. From startup to sale, the course of building a business never did run smooth, and in this series we go behind the scenes, exploring the highs and lows which come with building a business at every stage of the journey. Today I'm joined by Giles English, co-founder of Braymont Watches. We had this call the other day from Harrison Ford's team, and they said, uh, look, Harrison's in, in England filming um, for Indiana Jones, and he, he loves his watches and obviously loves his planes, as, as you guys do. We've got a bit of spare time, come and, come and have a tour of the wing. So came for a tour, and sort of four hours later, and half a bottle of whiskey down in our bar, they'll wear them because they like them and, and like what we stand for as a brand. Giles inherited a passion for both aviation and adventure from his dad, an ex-RAF pilot with a PhD in aeronautical engineering. Inspired by family tragedy, together with his brother and co-founder Nick, Giles has pioneered the reinvigoration of British watchmaking. Time began for Braymont back in 2002, when the brothers embarked on a journey to make painstakingly crafted pilots' watches. Not one, but two plane crashes have been pivotal in the company's story. Fittingly known then for its tested beyond endurance motto, Braymont has grown to become one of the largest manufacturers of chronometers in the world. Well, Giles, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, all entrepreneurs need a sense of adventure, don't they? But the English family arguably has more than its fair share. Tell me a little bit about where the name Braymont came from. Um, well, yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Um, yeah, we have seen a bit of adventure over our life, and I think um, probably everyone needs a little bit. Maybe I've had a little bit too much. Um, yeah, the name, well, originally we started building watches the first couple of years. We had no name on, and we really didn't want to go and buy an old brand. And that's what a lot of Swiss watch companies have done. I could have brought Marge Harrison on, one of the great you know, British watchmakers, but that wasn't our route. And obviously, my name's English, so we're never going to get English on a watch. And after dad died, Nick and I want to, um, uh, this is it's about three years into building our watches, uh, we were on a flying trip through France and um, in an old biplane and, and it all went horribly wrong for us. We got stuck in some terrible weather. So we sort of landed and this lovely old boy, this old farmer said, look, put your plane in my hangar. Um, and the weather, you know, he had a farm shed with some, uh, hay bales in the corner and we put the plane in there and the weather stayed terrible for about two days and he let us stay with him and and my father died when he was 49 and th this old boy was in his late 70s and he was fixing these old motorbikes and tractors and loved his clocks as well and we thought actually if our dad had lived to this age he would have been like this old boy and his name was Antoine Bramon and we stayed with him and left and he just, he reminds me of our dad and it was quite poignant. And a couple of days later, when Nick and I thought, Bremont, that's a nice sounding name, actually. We, we could we could use that, but won't associate it with this uh, Antoine in any way, shape or form. And we called him up and said, look, well, this is our this is our idea and uh, love the name Bremont. And we went, ah, crazy Englishman. And uh, But that's where the name came from. And uh, it meant something to us, but a very strange sounding name for an English company, but uh, it seemed to have worked. In terms of the origins of the company, there was a tragic accident was something that prompted a, a change of career for you, wasn't it, Charles? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, well I um, sort of grew up with this amazing dad. He's a PhD aeronautical engineer from Cambridge, ex-RAF entrepreneur, but he loved building stuff. And uh, 
He built a boat we lived on. He built a plane we still fly. Um, he was just one of this sort of amazing individuals. And he had this passion for watches and clocks, which was very much a, a shared family passion. And I went off to go and study engineering at university and, um, and Nick went off and was sponsored by the RAF. And we used to do a lot of flying in our holidays. And, and one gorgeous March day, Nick and Dad, we all went to the airfield, which is Northfield Airfield in Essex, and had this lovely days flying. And Nick and Dad were practicing formation aerobatics, and I was on the ground. And it all went horribly wrong. And they got caught in a spin. They they got out of it, but too late, and they crashed. And Dad died instantly. Nick should have died. I was on the ground told that he was had died and and um uh, amazing air ambulance happened to be close by picked him up took him to Whitechapel hospital and broke over 30 bones lost over 12 body worths of blood uh, which they had to obviously keep pumping new blood into him and his whole body reacted and but amazingly he survived and months later he came out of it and and we sort of vowed to sort of go and live our lives and that was the tipping point to make us sort of you know, follow our dreams and think, well, we could be dead tomorrow. Let's go and do something. And we're well aware there were 750 Swiss watch companies at the time, but no British watch companies. And yet this amazing history of British watchmaking. And and why luxury watches? As you say, you know, there was when you started this business, there was no British luxury watchmaking sector left. Probably there was 100, 150 years ago, but there was nothing left. So why luxury watches? Why British manufacturing? Well, I, I, as you said, 150 years ago, we were making half the world's watches and clocks. 60% of a modern mechanical um, watch were de- designed by British watchmakers. Um, so there's this huge history there. And we were well aware of that. And we just loved Cogs and gears, luxury watchmaking is about cogs and gears. And you know, 86,400 seconds a day and a luxury watch will be within you know, four or five seconds accurate. That's what fascinated us. And we knew we had this sort of desire for a good pilot's watch and what that really stood for. And for us, it was sort of you know, a watch you could wear in the boardroom or up Mount Everest is that sort of classic British style watch. And the cost of doing this meant the watch had to be luxury. They're so expensive to produce. What we didn't realise at the time was quite how difficult it was going to be. Two brothers, you know, experience in engineering, maybe a knack for this kind of thing, but no experience in watchmaking, really. Did did people tell you you were crazy when you wanted to, you know, start a, a British company manufacturing watches in the UK when no one had done anything like that for a very, very long time? Oh, uh, I think they still say we're crazy, but uh, um, I knew engineering. I knew we could do it, but we had no history in it. Um, we weren't Swiss. And, you know, all those early people and journalists, there was a definite love and support. But there was this sort of nodding. Uh, we think you're slightly mad and not going to make it. The first uh, we thought a couple of years it took us five years to create and sell our first watch, an extra three years on top of that before we could bring any of it back to the UK. So you know, if you give this enough time, you can learn a process. We had to get brilliant people on board to support us. Um, but yeah, it was not easy. And when you hear those kind of naysayers, 
non-believers, people telling you not to do this, does that just make you more determined or does it sow seeds of doubt for an entrepreneur? Um, I think as an entrepreneur, you, um, uh, if, you know, it's so easy to say um, that's not going to work um, for anyone else. And I still say that to people who come to me with uh, entrepreneurial ideas. And it's really not about the idea. It's about how you execute it. And, I, and, and we've got this rule, and I've been quoted this before, and, and it's just become so true. It's this three times rule. Yeah, it, it, it's going to take three times longer. It's going to take three times harder and more effort than you ever imagine, and it will be three times more expensive. Now, if you're willing to go through that three times rule, you'll make it. But most people give up after one and a half, two times, and you'll never get there. Um, and Nick and I, with this sort of determination of what we'd been through, we couldn't, you know, couldn't give up. And it was part dedication to dad, part, you know, it's a passion. We absolutely enjoyed every single day of it. And you're creating something beautiful that you've actually physically made and you own it. And, and that was, you know, there. And I think there's a, there's a, you know, a, a real reason of following a passion makes work so much easier. And yeah, that, that kept us going. And talking about three times more expensive, how, how did you finance the business, particularly in the early days? So early days, we did it ourselves. We mortgaged our houses um, and that got us to the sort of point of launch. And then we realized quickly we're going to run out of money. Um, it's such a capital intensive business, watchmaking. So we raised it off private individuals who believed in what we were trying to do. It couldn't have worked with VCs of those early days because it's such a long process. There was no sort of you know, three to five years in and, and out. Um, it needed someone with that sort of long-term vision. But yeah, any business, um, cash flow and finances is critical and takes up a lot of your time. And in terms of raising money from private individuals, angel investors, what, what lessons have you learned from that process? What tips would you give to budding entrepreneurs who maybe need to, to raise some money and, and, and want to turn to, to angels? Um, do a good deal. <laughs> get advice. Get help. Get someone who is going to have your interests in mind because that investor is wanting the maximum amount of stake for the cheapest amount of money. So be very wary and only raise the money if you really need to. And you've got to back yourself. You've got to put your own money in this because if you're not going to back yourself, why would anyone else back you? And be prepared to grow slower, but keep more of that business is, is probably my ultimate advice. But it, it, it is complicated because it's very easy in hindsight. But at the time, you need that money. You need to keep it going. But any business needs investment and underinvesting is kills the business as much as anything else. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about manufacturing as well. Now, I actually spoke to you way back in 2013 when I was working for the Daily and the Sunday Telegraph. And I looked up that article and it was kind of pleasant going down memory lane. But there was a quote from you in that piece saying that UK manufacturing had been a nightmare for, for you. So I just wanted to ask you, I suppose, what you meant by that, if you can think back that far. How hard was it trying to restart watchmaking in the, in the UK? What were your biggest challenges and, and where did you turn for help? Well, I, I, look, it is, I don't know, that's a good, good quote, and it's so true and still is a nightmare. I th the challenge you've got is you can go and buy a machine to manufacture a, a single part, but 
the machine is easy bit. I then need an operator to operate that machine. I then need the programmer to program that machine. I need, then need the CAD engineer above that machine. I then need the warehouse or storage place to put that machine and the electricity to keep it going and the health and safety and the admin and everything else. And that's for one machine. So it's so much easier outsourcing because you don't have most of that stress and you can just design it and hand it to a third party. And that is the challenge. And doing it in a market where there is no skill set in what we're trying to do. You know, we're we're machining components to, you know, three to five microns. A human hair is 60 microns in thickness. So you are using machines that no one else has ever purchased, you know, outside Switzerland, uh, making something that no one's actually machined in the UK before. So it's all new. And that is the challenge. But that's also the fun bit. And that's also the control you get by being able to do it and the quality of the product. You're not beholden to anyone else. You're not having to um, re-engineer those designs because you've got a different manufacturer manufacturing those components or going bust on you and any of those challenges. So ultimately, I think it can work. But you have to be able to make the quality of that component better than you would elsewhere. And it is a long, slow process. You have to be patient. But if you come to Henley on Thames now, you see, come to the wing, you're all welcome. Come book a tour and you see it being done. And it's just so exciting to have all of that. And, and we've always said we want to kick build an industry. It's not just about us. We want other people to be doing this, you know, outsourcing components to all of that, but happening in the UK. You mentioned there that there's no skill set in watchmaking, but was there anywhere you could turn for help? For example, you know, one thing that the British are quite good at manufacturing is is cars. Was there anyone in the car industry that, that could help you with some of this stuff? Yeah, I think um, that and we have a lot of ex-car industry people working for us. And there's no doubt there's a huge skill set in there. But if you look at the car industry, still a lot of that is outsourced, apart from Formula One, which isn't. And also, you're making a component to a car. The tolerances aren't there. They're different machines. And you know, I make a bit of metal. It has to look perfect under a loop. You know, no bit in a car needs to look perfect under a loop. And so it's a different skill set. So we had to get some great technical skills from car, aerospace, arms, defense. And we've had to effectively use the Swiss to retrain and then bring that skill set back. That's the only way we've been able to do it. Um, And it's been effective, but there's no way we wouldn't be here without the support of the Swiss. That's for sure. And you co-founded the business with your brother, Nick. Uh, You know, running a business can be a testing and stressful experience with with any business partner that, that you meet. Do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage starting a business with a family member and, and what have been the ups and downs of growing a company with someone so close who's in the family? Um, well, I think it's an advantage if they're talented, probably not if they're not. I, I, I'm very lucky with Nick. We design the watches together. We have a very similar taste in, in what we like when your designing makes that very helpful. Also, there's a massive trust in running a business. Can you trust the person you're working with? Can you, when things are going a bit wrong or he's an, or she is annoying you, can you actually say, oi, this isn't right? I think with a brother, you are happy to have that screaming match. And then 10 minutes later, you've forgotten about it and you've got on. I think the biggest concern with businesses 
is with a partner that you are never actually talking about the issues early enough and you talk about them two years too late when actually too much water under the bridge and they become massive issues. And and the, and trust is a big thing. Have you got the same interests in mind? And you know, Nick's family is my family, and and we're very much aligned on that. So uh, no, I've been very lucky, but partly because um, uh, Nick is quite talented as well, so that helps. It sounds like getting the business to this point has been something of a Herculean task, but also what comes across from talking to you is it's been a real labour of love and there's a lot of excitement and fun and sort of thrill to it. I was just wondering, though, has there ever been a point in the gestation of the company where you've been close to throwing in the towel? As it, well, it has been a Herculean task and it still is. And I think every day has its challenges. As you're trying to build a global business, you're opening up stores, you have cash flow issues, all of that. You have COVID locking all your stores down. And and we have had many sleepless nights, but I've never once thought about stopping it because we've always been on a bit of a high. We're doing something we love doing. We believe we've, um, you know, you're building a brand as well as great product. And, and that's always sort of been the adrenaline rush that we've always had. We've known we've been in the right direction. How to get there in terms of sales and infrastructure it's been a rocky road of ups and downs. So I think in any business, you've got to see progression. And if it's not working, you can't just keep doing the same thing. You've got to make changes. And that's that's exhausting. You've got to bring strength in where you don't have it and, and realize what you're good at and bad at. And I think, you know, ego, because you think you're good at everything in, in life. I think only when you come up a bit older, do you realize actually you're not good at everything. And but what are your real strengths and if, what are your weaknesses and can you get someone to fill those gaps and not have an ego that they're going to be much better at it than you? And, and I think that's been an interesting journey as well. You hinted at a couple of contemporary challenges there, for example, the pandemic. I was wondering, are you experiencing issues with hiring? So is our skills a challenge? We see everything from hospitality to vets to, to HGV drivers experiencing shortages that are affecting supply chains the world over. How are you coping with, with issues with skills shortages? Oh, I, th- I think that's I think we're all having that Um we're, we're lucky in some sense in the straight watchmaking. We train and we have apprenticeships. So we get people from the very the grassroots and we trade them up. But other sides of the business, if you want good e-commerce or CRM or data people, they are incredibly difficult to get hold of good people. You're recruiting people in the US or Asia who you're putting your trust in the brand. So you know, we're just launching a store in, in Shanghai and we have a whole new team in Shanghai. You know, I've never been able to fly out to meet them. So your, your trust and your in those individuals is immense. Um, so, yes, I think skill shortage and that's just going to continue. And you can train people so much in-house. If you're looking to grow, you, you need to bring in new skills. You can't always um, learn on the job, that's for sure. And what about supply chain? So, for example, ex- you do a lot of UK manufacturing, but export's very important to you, isn't it? So you've you know literally got moving parts in the watches, but you've also got lots of moving parts when you're when you're selling the products. Have, have you been caught up in these global supply chain problems that everyone seems to be experiencing? Um, I think everyone has to some extent, but we're we're lucky. One, we're not reliant on China and and ships coming across. So um, I, I sit on a 
a board of a, a clothing brand that that makes some you know some handbags and stuff in in Asia and you know, the cost of shipping has gone from something like three thousand pounds a container to nineteen thousand or something ridiculous like that and the time taken we don't have that issue and that's the brilliant thing about having our big chunk of our supply chain here in Henley. But there are still parts that you're getting from abroad, um, even if it's just packaging, that is challenging. So I think, yeah, shipping anything big around the world, I think you're going to be struggling with. And I can see it having a massive effect. And I know brands who are selling into into Europe who have almost stopped, stopped trying to sell because of all the paperwork and extra costs and associated in doing that. We're slightly lucky our you know, main market outside the UK is America and nothing has really changed on that. But I was on the first flight to New York this last week and going and seeing my team. You know, for uh, 604 days, I haven't been able to go and see my team out there. And you're running a global business, you can't get out and to a market. And so much can be done on Zoom, but not everything. And, and that's been challenging. And some of the received wisdom is that selling to the United States is, is tricky for UK businesses, but you seem to have done that very well. Have you got any tips on exporting to America for other entrepreneurial companies? Um, look, I'm, I'm a, uh, I back that up. It's incredibly difficult to go to America. And, and, the, and the biggest challenge is America is not one country. It's, it's lots of states um, with very different mindsets. It's a massive country. And we all make mistakes of trying to spread ourselves far too thin, thinking that one marketing message will cover the market, whereas it's just not like that. And as soon as you sort of get your head around that and act as a, you know, act as it's um, many countries and you've got to cover it, life becomes a bit easier. But it's very difficult. Your product needs a real USP as a as a brand. You need to be in their face the whole time to make it work. Yeah, you just need to know where your markets are and and, and focus on them. But but it's a big market. In in watch terms, really percentage terms, it's not as big in population difference as it is in the UK. UK is more of a mature watch market than America. I mean, around the world, if you look at the Chinese market, China's is 50% of global watch market now. So if you're not in China, you're only going to make, you know, deliver to 50% of the potential market out there. So that's that needs to be a further f- uh, focus for us. But America, um, yeah, we've got to continue to work hard at that. And talking of American customers, I think I'm right in saying Tom Cruise is being someone who's spotted in your wearing your watches. Or uh, if we say, if we look closer to home, Ewan McGregor, I think, as, as as well as someone who's worn one of your watches. Who have you been most chuffed by? Who's a who's a customer? Who are you most proud of? And second part of that question would be someone who you haven't yet seen wearing one of your watches who you'd like to. Well, you know, we've we've been quite lucky with people wearing our watches over the years and asked to be in movers. You may have seen them in Kingsman or the latest Venom film and stuff, Tom Hardy and Venom. And and that's the, the lovely thing about you know, a, a product like cars is that everyone's interested in them. And, and it, we had this call the other day from Harrison Ford's team. And they said, uh, look, Harrison's in, in England filming um, for Indiana Jones. He, he loves his watches and obviously loves his planes as, as you guys do. We've got a bit of spare time. Come and come and have a tour of the wing. So, 
came for a tour and sort of four hours later and half bottle of whiskey down in our bar, we formed a new friend. And it, but that's, you know, we can't pay these people because if you go and pay them, it's millions of pounds, but they'll wear them because they like them and, and like what we stand for as a brand. So, uh, I mean, amazing guy. He's 79, but looks about 60. So we invited him along to the Formula One Grand Prix. We, we, we worked with Williams Formula One, so he came along to Silverstone as well. But uh, yeah, a lovely chap. You can't afford to pay celebrities millions of pounds, can you, Charles? But you have got another way to, to grow the business via partnerships. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I think, for example, you've had a partnership with the car maker Jaguar, but also some very interesting work, for example, with the Royal Navy Submarine Service. Yeah, I think partnerships have been a big part of Bramon's growth. And, and that is, you know, if you can work with the right partner, you're elevating yourself to their client base you're creating content that um, captivates different markets. So if it's cars, you're getting into the car press. And a good partnership, both people benefit from it. Now, you have to be careful that it doesn't dilute your own message too much. So you get known as Bramon work with Jaguar or Williams as opposed to Bramon. And from us, they have to you you have to dissect that partnership and it has to be really true to what your brand is. So Jaguar, we started making cocks for their concept cars, working with Ian Callum, the chief designer, for quite a few years before we ever did a watch with them. So there's some real history and background. You're coming up with some quite innovative designs. It wasn't just putting Jaguar on a dial. And that we're really conscious of that. Working with Rolls-Royce at the moment on their world speed record attempt, the fastest electric aircraft, yeah, not only have we designed some of their cockpit, we've machined some of the parts for the canopy. That whole partnership, it's it's more in depth. And Nick and I always felt, you know, any journalist who's going to go, yeah, why are you doing this? Is it just a sort of you know direct branding thing? We could say no, and and really honestly sell and believe that. And yeah, you know, we're working with other brands that we feel we can deliver some halo branding for them as well. Now we're bringing a client base and a new market to it. Obviously we're luxury, that connection has to be right, but it's connecting with an audience who ideally loves the partner you're working with. So that halo effect comes on you, but it's not always easy and it takes a lot of activation to get that right. You've got to create the content around it. You've got to tell that story because if you if you do it only half-heartedly, you, everyone gets annoyed by it and it doesn't work. And when you're doing your due diligence on a partner and indeed a partnership, what are the key questions you should be asking yourself? And is it a case of not being too sort of swayed by the glamour of a brand, for example? I, I totally. It's very easy to be sucked in. And then you realise it's actually, it's not a partnership, it's a licensing deal. It's not something that they really believe in. They just want your money or your brand. So it, do you trust the people? Do you really like the people you're dealing with? Because they're the people who are buying into what you're doing. And yeah, that, that's key. And can you, you know, if, if you really dissect it, do you believe in what you're trying to do? Because if, if there are any doubts, you know, I think with all marketing, my view is if you are worried about it, if you wake up in the night thinking about it too much, then it's the wrong thing to be doing. They, they should be no-brainers for everyone. And then, then, then you win. 
And you've mentioned the importance of partnerships there, Charles. What about philanthropy? Is that important to the business and indeed you as an individual? Yeah, we have, as a, um, a business, we've raised a lot of money for charity. And every year we do a, a limited edition watch, which is tied to a, a charitable partner. So this year it's with Longitude Watch, working at Greenwich Museum, raising funds for them. I think, well, personally, it gives me a real buzz raising these funds. I think for staff... So in lockdown, anyone who bought a watch, we gifted a, a laptop to local children in need working at schools who had no access to, 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 to internet or online learning at home. And all these things, I think it's an inspiration for your staff. For you as a business, you are really feel you're doing some good. And I think your consumer who's buying into that product, he's feeling he's doing or she is feeling some good. So it should be win-win. And ultimately, you know, my job as an employer, I'm I'm feeling the pressure on on employing people who are paying for their families and their mortgages and and everything else. But doing that and and doing some good is making me feel a lot better about myself. Otherwise, why am I doing all of this in life? And I think, um, yeah, it's very enjoyable to to come at it. And how do you go about selecting which charities to support? And do you involve staff in that? Um, yep, staff are very much involved. So we're working with um, one of our military charities. We we met the John Egging Trust. And John was an ex-Red Arrows pilot who died. And his wife, Emma, set up this charity for disadvantaged children. And they came round, and we're talking about watches, and they came around for a tour. And I met Emma and... I met some of these children with absolutely nothing in their world. And they and we gave a tour to some of them around the facility and, and they were just inspired and you know, something like that. All the staff here were just totally moved by it. So we decided to do anyone who comes for a tour, there's a £25 fee and that goes straight to the charity. And it, it's, you know, I th- that's very much the staff inspired, but personally it was incredibly moving. Yeah, you can you can keep on. There's there's so much stuff we want to do as a company, but you can't do everything. Well, it sounds like you're still having a ball run in this business, Charles. And obviously, the company's coming up to its 20th anniversary year. I think. Have you thought at all about exit strategy or succession planning? No, we haven't. We've still got a long way to go. We're sort of scraping uh, the the right infrastructure to go to the next stage of growth. And and you know, if you're growing a business. Getting to 2 million is really hard. 2 to 10 is easier. 10 to 20 million is is challenging because then because each stage you're having to completely update your systems, update your processes, get a different group of individuals to run it and then grow on from there. And I think um, running a business, you never really sit back and say we've made it. Well, you mentioned there some of the difficulties and challenges of, you know, managing a business as it grows and indeed its finances as it grows. What about your personal finances? Is that something that you've had professional advice on along the way? Is it is it easy to sort of keep your eye on that as the as the company's growing or is there a risk that that kind of gets forgotten because you're spending all your time thinking about growing the business? Yeah, yeah, because all, all, all your money is tied up in the business, isn't it? So you're, <laughs> that's where the personal finance focus is. Um no, I, I look. I sort of um, uh, invest in bits of. I love old cars and old 
and property and and obviously the stocks and shares but um yeah you when your bulk of your wealth is tied into your business that's where the focus of of making it work um really comes from but i think uh you could always spend a lot more time being more systematic and uh time is not really sort of you know you're you're pushed on that front and what's next for Bremont? what are you most excited about in terms of the company's future well i, I think china for us launching a new store in in the next couple of weeks will be really exciting to see how that goes we're launching uh, something like seven new stores in the next two or three months um, which is a big focus to that growth so we hope that really works um, getting getting around the world again be able to see our stores and and connect I think this this next stage of growth we with our new Longtube watch we launched a few weeks back, that's the first time we've done a complete movement being built in the UK. And that's, that's uh, you know, probably, you know, to give you some idea of how major that is, out of 750 Swiss watch companies, probably only 15 to 20 are manufacturing movement parts, assembling movements and full watches under one roof. And it really is, puts us right up there with these other watch companies, uh, the Swiss watch companies. So that's been a, a, a mammoth task to get to that point. Now we've done it on a technical level and building it, we have to get out and tell the world about it. So it's been really exciting, but this is the next journey. Yeah, we're around the next headland and there's always another one. And finally, what words of wisdom would you pass on if you could to, uh, to a younger Nick and Giles who are maybe just starting out? Uh, a younger Nick and Giles starting out. Um, I think probably, well, to anyone out there wanting to become an entrepreneur, it's not an easy run. And you probably often make more money going and working for someone else and have less of a stressful time. It keeps you awake at night. But if you're that way in mind and you're happy to take that stress on, it's an amazing journey. Um, advice to myself in those early days, keep that ambition on. I think we um, have definitely made individual errors along the way that you, you would have learned from those mistakes. But at the time, we'd never have known those, those real lessons. I think probably at times I um, have been too engrossed and haven't enjoyed the journey enough because you're always looking forward. And I think you have to at times take a step back and get that energy going again. It's very easy to burn yourself out. So probably would have taken a few more holidays uh, along the way. But I'm still married and I'm still working with my brother and uh, can still pay my monthly mortgage. So it hasn't all gone badly wrong. Absolutely not. Well, Charles, I really enjoyed speaking to you. It's been a fantastic journey and long may it continue. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for all the listening. Thank you so much, Charles, for sharing your incredible family and business story. I'll be back next time chatting to Cecile Reynaud, founder of Seraphine, the maternity fashion brand which found favour with celebrities across the globe. So the celebrity endorsement was the kind of a cornerstone of making the brand uh, known globally. And the first time that, uh, you know, I had a massive celebrity encounter was when Claudia Schiffer walked into the store. And at that point, she was followed by a horde of paparazzi who kind of stuck behind the, the window shop and took loads of pictures. It just made me realize that this photo had traveled on a website in Australia 
the next day. And that kind of made me realize the power of celebrity and the power of PR, and I wanted to harness it. Make sure you're following the Entrepreneur's Chat so you're always notified when a new episode is available. Until next time, goodbye. Does running a business leave little time for managing your personal financial affairs? At Climate Hambros, we know how to simplify life's financial challenges for entrepreneurs. Considering your personal and business ambitions, we partner with you at every stage of your life, taking care of your finances so you can focus on what matters most to you. Find out more about how we can help create a secure financial future for you and your family at climatehambros.com.